Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank, we're thankful for your grace that you show, showered upon us. We thank you that your plan of salvation works forward in history, that nothing stops it, nothing can stop it, and you will bring it to completion. We thank you for these areas of prophecy, for though they may be difficult to work through, they are the basis of our assurance that you are in control of history. You work all things after the counsel of your will, and that man cannot stop that forward motion. We thank you the plan of salvation centers on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that it's by grace. No human merit is recognized. And we thank you, therefore, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to these issues that are so crucial in the areas of prophecy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, just to uh, review just a bit again. Um, we have been working with the um, merging of the prophecies of the Old Testament that an Old Testament person would have known, would have understood, with the new information in the New Testament. And so we bring together the two programs of God. One has to do with Israel and the Gentile nations, and the other has to do with the church. And so the title of that section of the notes, beginning page 120, is The Church and the Tribulation. And I said we're going to go through different positions. Because in that overall flow of church history, again, to remember, so we have patience when we work through these things. Don't get unduly put out by other believers who hold different positions. Um, remember, you can look upon church history as a... Uh, a time of the maturing of the body of Christ. And the maturing of the body of Christ is a maturing in the understanding of God's Word. The maturity is defined to be that way. Um, in Israel's era, uh, growth of Israel was actually measured, if you want it measurable, uh, by the spirituality of the nation and its occupation of the land. Well, the maturity of the church can't be measured by real estate because the church doesn't have any real estate. Israel has real estate, not the church. So there's different measures of the church's growth versus measures of Israel's growth in the Old Testament. And the first three or four hundred years, remember what, what we said again and again and again, first three or four hundred years of church history, what were the issues? Well, first of all, they had to get together the Word of God had to have it canonized. The other issue was, what's the nature of God? The Trinity. Who is Jesus Christ, the God-man? And we take maybe for granted that, well, we can state that doctrine quickly, yeah, but it took three or four hundred years for the church to work that tr through. And then we came to the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, there, there, you can say there were two men in the Middle Ages that held the views of what did Jesus do on the cross, the atonement. One was Abelard, and the other was Anselm. And Anselm said what Jesus did on the cross was something objective. It was satisfying the justice of God. There was an atoning work being done there. Abelard said the effect of the cross is what counts, not what happened on the cross, but what happens in your heart when you look at the cross. So it was all subjective. 
and the view of Abelard went on into liberalism, and Anselm became part of orthodoxy. So orthodoxy, after that period of time, recognized the God-man went to the cross and he paid for sin. He made atonement for sin. It's not something that a, some fundamentalist preacher in the 1920s invented. So you, you tend to get that around the state denominational circles that they think that, you know, we fundies are the ones that made this up yesterday. It goes back, uh, at least to the time of Ansel, it goes back to the New Testament and the Bible, of course. But in the, in the flow of church history, uh, it's not a new thing here. This is not new truth. Then we came to the Reformation. And the issue in the Reformation was, how is the work of Christ appropriated? So the issue was the gospel, and we're saved by faith. And the issue there was between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And we still have people in our circles that can't tell the difference. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were saying, oh, religious people, they start wars all over the place. And, of course, when people make that remark to you, you can always remind them that the most people killed in the 20th century were secular regimes, communism and fascism and Nazism. Those are the ones that kill more people. And the whole Inquisition in Europe, there were only hundreds killed. When Stalin killed and Hitler killed, there were 30 million killed. little order of magnitude problem there. But in any case... Uh, they were talking about Ireland, and they were saying, see, it's the Catholics and the Protestants. And I said, look, you could walk down a street in Northern Ireland and ask anybody at random, and they couldn't tell you the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. It's, they're in it because their grandfather was in it, and their great-grandfather was in it, they're perpetuating this family feud that's gone on for centuries. They don't know a clue about the difference between Rome and, and, and the Reformation. Not a clue. So... You know, you just, you just kind of have to speak up sometimes when people say that kind of stuff to you. Okay, so in the Reformation, the issue was, how can I appropriate? How is the grace of God passed from the cross to, to man? And the issue is that the Reformers said very clearly, you are justified by faith, and they said faith alone. Catholicism says you're justified by faith, but they don't say by faith alone. It's by faith in, in doing works and so on. And then it's dribbled out to you in sacramental activities like going to Mass and so forth. So, that was the Protestant Reformation. But here's what was left. At the end of the Protestant Reformation, what was left was a whole bunch of other stuff that had been inherited from Rome, such as the doctrine of the Church. What did the Protestants do at the end of the Reformation? Think about it they established state churches. So they replaced the Roman Catholic Church, which was a church state. By the way, the Vatican is a state. It's a nation. Roman Catholicism is not just a religion. It is an internationally existing legal entity called the Vatican to which we send ambassadors. Roman Catholicism is a church state, not just a church. Well, the Protestants then went on, and what did they do in Germany? They had a state church. What was it called? Lutheran. They went into the Switzerland and they formed the Reformed church, churches there. So the Protestants kind of carried over the same concept that the church and the community were the same. And if you read the history in America, when the Puritans came here, they basically did the same thing Massachusetts Bay Colony. Everybody in the community was baptized 
and it was like becoming a citizen of the community, was becoming baptized and sort of becoming this. So the church really wasn't clear. And nor was eschatology, which is the idea of what's going to happen. Where's the church place itself in the big picture? And what had happened was that Luther and Calvin and the other guys, they had their own battles to fight, which were over in the area of salvation. Today, or after the Reformation got through, they were left as inheritors of Roman Catholic eschatology. And so we go back to the way things were left at the end of the Reformation here, just to understand once again why we're going through all these details. What happened here at the end of the Reformation is that theology became what I call frozen up in that the, the gimmick that the Protestants relied upon, they had to, they were fighting Roman Catholics all over Europe, was that they set up very detailed creeds. And these creeds have much good in them. I mean, the Westminster Confession of Faith still has one of the most eloquent answers to the question of what is the purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We can, we can agree with that. So lots of good stuff in these creeds. We don't, we're not quibbling there. What we're saying, however, is they, try, they did it too fast. What they should have done was put into the creeds the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, how I appropriate that by faith. And if they just left it there, it would everybody have been cool. But they went on to include doctrines of the church, which we call ecclesiology, and doctrines of prophecy, where is history going, which we call eschatology. So by, by hardening things up prematurely like that, they froze the understanding of the church as it was understood in the 15th century. And they froze the idea of eschatology at 15th century levels, as though the Holy Spirit hasn't taught anybody in the last 400 years. Well, the Holy Spirit has, and as history goes on, there's been a clarification because the Holy Spirit works in different ways, and usually how the Holy Spirit works in the church age is he always has to, he, he, we always have to be hit with a heresy of something before the church does something to respond. It was the heretics that called forth Athanasius who clarified the person of Jesus. It was Abelard who tigered up the church to debate what happened on the cross. It was Rome that irritated people with the indulgences and everything else about how does a person get saved. Well, similarly, in the last 300 years, there have been increasingly dogmatic positions of the nature of the state, of government. And if you think about it, in the 20th century, the two biggest anti-Christian movements were communism and fascism. And those movements were dominated by a foreign eschatology. The Nazis knew their goal. They thought they knew where history was going. Karl Marx and the communists knew their goal, and they thought they knew where history was going. So until the church faces this, we don't really think about getting hold of the big picture. So the emphasis then in the 19th and 20th centuries, I believe the Holy Spirit's prompted us to get involved in better understanding ecclesiology and eschatology, and out of that has come the understanding that we're going through now. 
So we've looked at how you combine all this at the end of history, the church and Israel's programs. On page 120, we started out with preteritism. And that's one of the, one of the so-called solutions. And as we said, there are characteristics of preteritism. And you don't have to know all the details, but you ought to be uh, cognizant of the basic thing, because it's, it's uh, pretty heavy in Maryland, actually, right now. So you go to Christian camps or something, a Christian bookstore, and you may run into this, um, maybe in Christian organizations that you belong to. So, so you just want to kind of know and not be taken off guard when you run into this kind of thing. What did we say preteritism was all about? Well, preteritism is that Reformed theology, which is basically amillennial or postmillennial. And I'll draw you a picture again so we remember what amillennialism says. It says the church history goes on, and here's the return of Christ, and that's it. Very simple picture. And the post-millennialism is that you go through church history and things are getting better and better and better and better, and then Jesus comes. So they're kind of close together in that sense. The problem with this view is that if this is the church age, the question is, what happened to the program with Israel? What happened to the program with the Gentile nations? Well, since the church was never clarified, the church kind of becomes a surrogate for Israel. The church replaces Israel in these schemes. Then the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament are transferred to the church. But the problem is, in the transfer, things get gooed up. Why do they get gooed up? Because Israel was a nation. Is the church a nation? No. The church doesn't have a government. Israel was a nation that had a government. Israel was a nation who had what? Land. Does the church have land? So, the church doesn't have land. The church doesn't have a government. Well, the church is a strange new entity here. And when you move prophecies that were attached to Israel in the Old Testament and bring them over and attach them to the church, now you've got to do some fudging. And you, you, you spiritualize those prophecies. So you spiritualize uh, going into the land and the, and the glorious millennial kingdom is really not a kingdom. It's really not literally going into the land. It's just kind of a, a metaphor of spiritual blessing. So this is what happens. And, and it, you want to keep your eye on the ball here. Always look at the hermeneutic involved. Why that we mean. Look at how scripture is being interpreted. Hermeneutics mean the rules of interpretation. And here's a simple way to remember, so you don't get fogged up with details. If you go and buy a car, and you get a note from the bank on the car, so you carry this little note around. You're borrowing money to buy your car. There's a contract that you had to sign for that car. Now, some teenagers' parents sign it. Then the kid wrecks the car, and then the parent's insurance goes up. Um, but the point is that you have a contract, and you sign that contract. Now, that contract is between you, who signed there, and the bank. That contract says you have certain obligations, and the bank has certain obligations. 
contract. Now, if in your head you will, you will always remember these two words are the same kind of things. Covenant and contract. Those words, I make them equal. And it will help you think this through. That contract that you get when you buy a car, you buy a house, and you have an obligation, you have to make payments, and there's a little note in the fine print in the contract that says you don't make the payment, they come get your car. Because you don't fully own the car until you finish the last payment. Now, wouldn't it be nice if you could allegorize your auto loan contract? and say, well, you don't really have to make 48 different payments. 48 is just a number of completion. You see how stupid it is? So, so that's what you do, is you think in terms of a contract. Would you take an auto loan or a mortgage loan and apply this hermeneutic to it? Yet, we think nothing of it when Israel had five contracts with God. They are called covenants, is a religious word for it, but it, they mean contracts. And we wouldn't do our mortgage payments that way, we wouldn't do our auto loans that way, but yet we can do it with the scriptures. Now look at that. Look at the inconsistency here. So if you're consistent, you can't do that, and you wind up with a pre-millennialism. Now, in premillennialism, the word pre means the Lord Jesus comes pre or prior to the kingdom. So you have the church age going on like this. You have this problem we're dealing with. Then you have Christ come back and you have this 1,000 years of perfect environment. Not perfect environment, because it's still fallen, but the Lord Jesus reigns with the rod of iron. And then history ends and we have the eternal state. And two or three Thursday nights, I went through all of human history and showed you that every one of these dispensations or ages has a goal. They're not just selected. God is the perfect teacher. He doesn't teach you calculus before you've had algebra. He doesn't teach you algebra before you had arithmetic. Got to have a sequence. And so in history, each dispensation teaches more about God and about man. And the last lesson is the last age of history. And what is God going to teach us in that last thousand-year period? It's a demonstration of what man so far has never been able to get together. And that is a peaceful world. Free of war. No militaries be involved. And you have world peace. And what God does... How he teaches the human race corporately is how he teaches us as individuals. How does he teach most of us, most of the time? We always, he, he'll let us go out and try to do our thing. We fall flat on our face. We look up and say, oh, got to trust the Lord this way. And then, then things kind of straighten out. Well, he's doing the same thing corporately to the human race. The human race right now is desperately for world peace. We've had the United Nations, before that the League of Nations. The idea is that can't we all get together and have peace? And it doesn't work. It doesn't work for a number of things. A number of reasons we won't get into tonight. But the point is, the Millennial Kingdom, it will work. And it will work because certain things are true. Now, here are the things that contribute to that world peace yet to come. And each of these things cannot be brought about by a political schema. Number one, there has to be a perfect human leader. 
who will not sin. No candidates available right now. There is coming one who will, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in the book of Revelation that he rules by force. The sword is beaten into plowshares. But, but it also says he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Because in the millennial kingdom there will be unbelievers born who will reject him. And there will be the flesh. And there will be the, the potential for war again. But the reason there won't be a war is because you have a perfect administration led by Jesus Christ ruling with absolute dictatorial authority over all the nations. And that's the rule. Of course, what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is let loose. That's one of the other conditions. Satan is going to be incarcerated for 999 years. And so, uh, if he's incarcerated, he and his demons are, are prevented from deceiving the nations. That's what the book sa Bible says. He is actively deceiving the nations. In fact, remember in the book of Daniel, the demonic powers were so powerful over Persia that if you had a three-dimensional map of the world, you'd see this big cluster of demonic powers right on top of what is now Iran. And when Daniel was inside praying, how long did it take the angel to come deliver his prayer? Two weeks. And the angel tells him that I had to, in order to get to you, Daniel, I had to call for reinforcements. I had to break through this demonic power canopy that existed over the nation of Iran at the time. And so that's the point that's involved here. That will be eliminated, and that makes peaceful conditions. So you see, the Millennial Kingdom can't come because a UN program for this, or a United Nations program for that, or a United States program, or the French, or the Germans, or whatever. Nobody has the power to do this. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Millennial Kingdom winds up, and then at the end of this kingdom, Satan is let loose for a while to see if mankind has ever learned the lesson finally. They've had 900 plus years of peace. Just think about it. This is uh, 2000. Let's go back to 2000. And let's subtract 900. So you get 1100. Now the condition at the end of the millennium would be as if today there hadn't been a war since Thomas Aquinas' day in the Middle Ages. There hadn't been any wars in 20th century, 19th century, 18th century, 17th century, 16th century, dot, 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 back all the way to a thousand years. Now there was no memory of what war was like. Satan is let loose for a short time and what happens? World War to try to overthrow the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's proved? The depravity of man. That man is a hopeless sinner apart from God. So at that point, we can go into eternity because now every possible objection to the reign of God has been demonstrated in the laboratory called human history. Human history is a laboratory. And for all eternity, we'll probably see videos or however God plans on reviewing history with us because each one of us comes only out of a little piece of history. So here we are in heaven for all eternity and we've got to discuss the grace of God and the glory of God and how can we discuss the glory of God if we don't see his handiwork and part of his handiwork was this human history that we just emerged proud of. And so you're sitting down having lunch or something in your resurrection body talking to a saint who lived at 930. 
and he asks you, what was the United States? Tell me about what your period of history was like. And then you can sit down and talk to them and, oh, what were you doing in 900 AD in the middle of Europe? Um, how did you write back then? What were you doing? How did the Lord work in those days? And those will be topics of discussion. But a larger topic, I believe, will be for us to constantly be reminded and immersed in the glory of God of what he was doing. So somehow he's going to have to review history for us. And it will be kind of like a rerun of here's what we did, here's what we want. Now, if you're ever tempted to think this, watch that, so to speak. All right, that's history. And preteritism has fastened itself on to amillennialism and postmillennialism. Here's why. Because if you take the prophecies literally, the church age ends in a disaster. The church, the church age is not going to end nicely. This is bad news for anybody who sees history to flow smoothly. And so in order to deal with this, what these reformed people do is they've changed the rules of interpretation and they have tried to reinterpret passages like Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation. We said before last week that Matthew 24, all that discourse, is largely seen as being fulfilled in A.D. 70. The entire book of Revelation is seen as fulfilled in A.D. 70. Then I went on in the notes, beginning on page 122, to illustrate some of the problems of preteritism. The first problem, page 122 we said, was that A.D. 70 doesn't fulfill the picture we see in the Bible of the return of Jesus. See, they say the Lord returned in some way, in some fashion, in A.D. 70. I was just talking uh, before the service here, before the class, and uh, you know, the person was saying, well, I, I missed it, <laughs> A.D. 70. Yeah, so did I, so did a lot of people. It doesn't fit. For one thing, when Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Ascension, what did the angels say to the two disciples, the two angels rather, say to the disciples? They said, as you have seen him leave, going up, up, up into a cloud, so he will come again, down, 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 out of a cloud, and he's going to come right to that place. So, I mean, this is not requiring heavy Bible study to, to understand the simple fact of what the angel was saying. Well, if it came in A.D. 70, anybody see Jesus coming out of a cloud in A.D. 70? Well, no. So what they say is that he came in the form of Vespasian and Titus' armies to destroy Jerusalem. And they said that was the coming of the Lord. It was a coming in judgment upon the nation of Israel. Well, that doesn't fit problems. So that's what in page 122 we said. The first objection is that the model of preteritism, that is, its concept of the return of Christ, doesn't really fit the Advent passages. Next, on page 123, we said that we dealt with the problem as they claim that the term come quickly, and here's where they say they are literal and we are allegorical. They claim that this adverbial expression coming soon or come quickly, that this expression always means 
come soon in the sense in a few hours or a few days. We said, however, if you look at the language, even our own language, everyday language, we have expressions like that where we don't mean it's going to happen in a few years, but rather it's potentially can happen any time. And so in page 123 down the bottom, I give you Tommy Ice's illustration. An illustration from sports may help. A team may make it to the championship game. It may be said of the team that the championship is at hand or within grasp. This does not mean it is certain to come within a short period of time. Just because it is at hand, just ask the Buffalo Bills. The NFL championship has been near or at hand for a number of years for the Bills, but is far from it when he wrote this. But thus far, it has yet to arrive. Now, there's an example of something being at hand. So that's the second meaning. So preteritism denies that that whole cluster of expressions can have this meaning of imminency. Something could happen. Okay, so that's the third objection. Now we come today to um, page 124. And we're going we're to finish up preteritism tonight and start in the next view. Um, Let's turn to Matthew 24:34. This is their favorite text. I think their Bibles are the binding is cracked right here at Matthew 24. Matthew 24, the verse they will quote is verse 34. And in verse 34, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay? Now, can you see the problem that they have here, or they think we have? If this generation isn't going to pass away until all these things be fulfilled, and all these things refer to Matthew 24 then how do we interpret this generation? And doesn't that mean that the generation that were listening then to the Lord Jesus will not pass away until these things be fulfilled? That's their argument for why these things, Matthew 24 and Book of Revelation, had to have happened within the lifetime of those people who were hearing the Lord Jesus. So, that gives you something to think about. So in this chapter, in this paragraph, you will follow my, my uh, reasoning in, in, in responding to this. Page 124 of the notes. A favorite proof text centers upon the identity of this generation in Matthew 24:34. Preterists ask these questions. Is not this generation in Matthew 24:34 the same group of people being addressed by Jesus since the last contextual use of the phrase this generation up in verse, uh, oops, verse 36. Let me see. No, I meant, um, oh man, I meant back in, in uh, 20, yeah, it should be Matthew 23:36. Yeah, that's what I got, Matthew 23:36. So that's the previous chapter, and part of Bible study is yours go to the context. 
So there's the last time that phrase, this generation, was used. And clearly in verse 36 of chapter 23, it does mean this generation, the generation to which Jesus is speaking. So, they say if Jesus had meant to refer to a future generation, he would have said that generation. Okay. However, if you look carefully at verse 34, Matthew 24, there are what we call, let's talk about grammar a minute here. Um, one of the great ways of studying the Bible is I don't know how many people, um, maybe I'm showing my age, but when I went through English class, the English teacher taught us to diagram sentences. And I don't know whether they teach that, I guess that might have been eclipsed by sex education or whatever else is the going thing now. But this generation is an expression. And if you diagram, if you had to diagram a sentence with this in it, you have this generation, and you have to explain what is that word? What function, grammatically, does that word do? Well, it's a, it's a pronoun. And it refers, it modifies a, a uh, noun here. And it's a, what's called a demonstrative. Now, if you look at it this way, when do you use in your everyday language this or that? Why, when you talk, do you select this instead of selecting the, the that. Well, if you're selecting the demonstrative this, you're visualizing at the point you're saying that something close up to you, either physically close to you or mentally on a picture. You're saying, look, look at this, something right here we can see. Look at that. And that's, that's a rule of grammar. That's how language is used. Now, where else in the same verse do you observe a near-term demonstrative? It's plural form. After things. Look, look, at, look at things. Is it a far demonstrative or is it a near demonstrative pronoun? It's a near demonstrative. These things. Not those things, but these things. Now, what are the things? So here it is, these things. So, however, we, however Jesus is doing this, at this point in his discussion, he has generation of people and things that are going to happen together in the foreground of his discussion. At this point, he is not positioning himself in the present and looking into the future. For if he had been in the present looking into the future, he would have said, that generation will not go away until those things are fulfilled. Okay? What Jesus has done at this point in the discussion is what often happens biblical prophecy. He has moved into the future. So now he's into the future, 
and he says, these things and this generation. Now what do you suppose is the interpretation of the phrase, this generation? It's the generation that is present when these things happen. This generation that is present when these things happen will not pass away until it's fulfilled. In other words, it's going to, the tribulation is going to be within easily within one generation, he says. not going to drag on and on and on. This generation will not pass away to see these things. Follow now in the notes, and I'll justify this from the Old Testament. Let's think about pronouns like this, these, that, and those, especially as used in eschatological texts. Pronouns substitute for object nouns previously mentioned or implied in the context. Demonstrative pronouns help locate where the object is within the speaker's perspective. This points out to an object that is visualized as nearby to the speaker. That points to an object that is visualized further away from the speaker. By carefully observing which demonstrative a speaker uses, the listener can learn where the speaker locates himself relative to the objects that he's speaking about. Everyday speech as well as literary texts often show that a speaker shifts his location to the objects that are spoken of. Before I go any further, you know where you can see this nicely? Is in writing, reports. Um, if you, write, uh, you see a news story of something that happened uh, and they interview somebody and the reporter is speaking about that event. But when the reporter writes about what the witnesses to the event saying, they'll quote somebody as saying, well, this plane did that, it did something. This plane fell out of the air. Well, what, what's this plane? the plane that the guy saw when it happened. But the reporter is reporting his terms for that past event. Now, relative to the reporter's writing, it was that plane that was last week that did that. But to the observer who was there on the scene, it was this plane, the plane that he saw. Okay? Now watch how it happens in prophecy. We see this all the time in the Old Testament. I'm going to illustrate it for you right now. Experienced readers of Old Testament prophecy know that such a shifting back and forth between present-centered perspective and future-centered one is common in eschatological passages. Readers re uh, repeatedly observe shifts in the temporal viewpoint from the present to the future and back to the present, as in Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2. Here's a case in point. We could go to hundreds and hundreds of cases, but let's just go to two here tonight. In Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Now, in what time framework is that reporter? Well, it's obviously David, and he's looking into the future. And he looks into the future and he sees this. And he quotes what they're saying in verse 3. But he's quoting them as though they're saying to him now. He doesn't write in verse 3, Then they will say, 
let us tear their fetters apart. Rather, he just quotes it as though he were there. David has moved into the future so that now the future is present to him and he's observing people saying this. And verse 4 goes on about this. And um, then in verse 7, here's another case. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee nations as the inheritance. Well, when is that going to happen? That's future. But it's written about as though David is on scene, we are on scene with him, and we are there observing it. If we were to use a demonstrative, for example, in uh, verse 7, we might say, we might have written the text, uh, I will surely tell of this decree. You see how appropriate it would have been? The present in that situation. Okay, now I want to show you where the demonstrative, this, this shifting back and forth, rather, occurs explicitly. It's implicit in these passages like Psalm 2, where you see the oscillation back and forth. Isaiah 12. Here in Isaiah 12, verse 4, it's speaking of a future time. And it is an expression very common in prophecy. Notice how verse 4 begins, Isaiah chapter 12. In that day, you will say. Now, just stop right there. If you look at that clause, in that day, you will say. Where do you place the writer with respect to what's happening? Is he there placing himself on scene? Or is he here now looking into the future? He's sitting now in the present, looking into the future. In that day, that distant day, in that day, they will say. Okay? It, following the paragraph then, it shows the speaker visualizes himself as in the present, looking into the future. But now the text says, goes on. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the people. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song. He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Now, what's that? Where is the center of the text happening in time? Is it happening at the time it's being written? Or have you been transported forward into the future to observe this being saying, and together with the people who are saying it, you are conversing with them and they're saying, let this be known. Do you see the shift? It's now that near demonstrative. Well, we could go on and on and on about this. And the problem is that in prophecy, you have this shifting back and forth, this to that. And it's just the nature of prophecy. I mean, that's just the way the Old Testament is structured in text after text after text. So, conclusion and bottom of page 24, that paragraph, preterists think that Jesus, throughout all of his discourse in Matthew, never moves away from a present-centered perspective. In such a perspective, this and these would refer to things present, that is, in the year that Jesus spoke that, and that and those would refer to things in the future. 
Indeed, Jesus has this present-centered perspective when speaking of the future time of his coming. He uses that and those in such expressions as those days and that hour. Now, I deliberately had you just look back at, Matthew, at uh, Isaiah 12 because I wanted you to observe that in prophecy, they'll often say, that day, in that day, in that hour. Now, Jesus follows exactly that Old Testament convention when he's talking about, and in that day, such and such will happen. He's doing exactly what Isaiah did, Jeremiah did, and all the prophecies. Why? Because he's Jewish, and he operates within the same prophetic framework and understanding as the Semitic peoples of the Old Testament. However, he speaks of the past flood of Noah as those days. The objects Jesus speaks about are remote to his vantage point in the present. However, when he speaks of specific events in that future time, such as wars, famines, earthquakes, astronomical catastrophism, he uses the demonstrative pronoun, these. So, back to Matthew 24. And, once again, looking at the context. Matthew chapter 24 um, if you look at verse 8, here's where Jesus did it again. He says, but all these things, doesn't say those things in the future, he says these things, the things that he's just got through speaking about, these things that are visually present in the imagination of both him and the people who have heard him speak these words. He, he's loaded the imaginations up of his disciples. He's described the things. In various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. So he's got all this in the, in the mind's eye of, of the people listening to him. Now that they're in the mind's eye, they're visualizing, gosh, what's these famines going to look like? Imagine what the earthquakes are going to look like. And so they're thinking this. They've, they've been in their imagination transported out into the future and they're looking at these things. Man, look at this. And Jesus says, these things. Because he's placing himself in that future time frame. So you've got to watch it when you're looking at prophetic texts. You can't just haul in here at 40 miles an hour and drive through. Got to watch the subtleties, and these aren't some, this is not hair splitting. This is just understanding how it is with prophetic literature. All right, continuing on the top of page 125, he uses the demonstrative pronoun "these" verses 8 and 33, indicating that in his perspective, the prophesied phenomena are now in the foreground. No longer is he standing in the present looking into the future. Now he stands in the future looking at its features close up. He focuses upon these future works of God as though he and his audience are there in that future time looking at them as they occur. And it is while he has this future-centered perspective looking at these features close up that he utters the sentence, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In the context, it is clear that this generation belongs in the same visualized foreground as the events themselves. 
This generation Jesus has in mind is the generation who get to see those tribulational judgments. Thus, he uses the near demonstrative pronouns this and these that tie both the objects viewed and the viewers together in this same future time. If he had meant, now watch this, if he had meant to say what the preterists think he is saying, he would have remained in the present-centered perspective, looking into the future, and uttered something like this. This generation will not pass away until all those things take place. Now, had he said that, we would pause here for some eschatological reconsideration. But he didn't say it. He said, this generation and these things, placing the generation and the things in the same temporal, temporal foreground. All right, so that's how we respond to their the key proof text. Now, another problem that arises with a preterist position. It turned to Daniel chapter 9. Remember we said that the book of Revelation actually is, a, is an expansion of the condensed overview of history Daniel was given in Daniel chapter 9. This is a very, very crucial Old Testament text. It happened toward the end of the Old Testament. And Daniel is the uh, high up in the bureaucracy of both Iraq and Iran. He got to be uh, a leader in both of those countries. Remember when we went through this earlier, verse 24, 25, 26. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Now here's, here's a verse that looks forward into the future and is summarizing all of Israel's calendar clock going. So we have Daniel being told how long things are going to go on. He says, verse 25, You are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven and sixty-two. Seven plus sixty-two is sixty-nine, right? Sixty-nine of these things called weeks. But the Aramaic that's translated weeks is simply the word seven. So what he's really saying, translated literally, is 69 sevens. And that's the time in years between the time of going to rebuild Jerusalem at the end of the exile until the Messiah. Okay? Then he says in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, historically, who destroyed the city and the sanctuary in AD 70? What country destroyed Israel? Rome. It says not the prince who is to come. It says the people of the prince who is to come. Now, do you understand why people believe the Antichrist will be someone who has vast powers over the area that originally was concerned with Rome and the Roman Empire. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, and even to the end there will be wars. And he, verse 27, who is the prince, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now look at that, one seven. So there's a seven 
all by itself here. There's 69 of the sevens here, and there's one seven here. That's where we get the word Daniel's 70th seven, or Daniel's 70th week. I want you to know that vocabulary because the next few, post-tribulationism that we deal, and the one after that, the three-quarter tribulationism, it's very critical that we work with what the label is. It's Daniel's 70th week, okay? This is the 70th week, seven years long. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, its and so forth. He'll make a firm covenant with many for a week, but in the middle of the week... So how many years is that? What's the middle of seven? Three and a half. In the middle of the week... He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even to a complete destruction. So right here in the middle of that, there'll be three and a half years, three and a half years, there's an abomination. And it's that abomination that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel, you get out of the city. And you better pray that it happens on a Sabbath. Or it doesn't happen on a Sabbath, so you can have traffic. So, Jesus is expanding, both in Matthew 24 and John in the book of Revelation, the content out of this little one verse, or two verses, back in Daniel. This is the heartbeat that gets expanded as the Holy Spirit expands our knowledge base. But it all is rooted back here in Daniel. Now, here's the, here's the problem for preterists. The preterist, while he tries to hold to that 69 in verse 26 as literal, because we know literally it's happened, he's got to hold to the literalness of the 70th week. But the 70th week is only seven years long. So if you have the crucifixion of Christ, and you add seven, if Jesus was crucified in 33, or 32s by some accounts, that gets you up to 40. doesn't get you up to 70 A.D. So, by not handling this right, he can't get the 70th week pushed up into the A.D. 70. It doesn't work out. And that's the point in the next paragraph on page 125. This is, mistake, this is problem number five for preteritism. Preteritism experiences difficulty with Daniel 9. If, like most non-dispensational schemes, preteritism denies that a gap exists, and they all do, between the 69 weeks and the 70th, then that 70th week cannot be made to stretch from A.D. 32 all the way up to A.D. 70 without going metaphorical, uh, allegorical in your interpretation of the numbers. And they can't do that because they've already gone literal with the first 69. So you can't have 69 all of a sudden now seven imaginary or seven figurative years. So there's a problem there, too. And ultimately, why I'm showing you this, it, the, the scheme of interpretation compels them to maintain consistency, to go non-literal. See, this is the problem you always get into. Sooner or later, a bad eschatology forces you into a non-literal hermeneutic. Somewhere along the line, if you push it far enough, you get, you get in hot water. Okay, last one. Bottom of page 125. Here's the other problem I run into. It's quite simple to understand this. If Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation prophesy of A.D. 70, 
what does that tell you about the date of their composition? They had to have been written before A.D. 70, right? If they were written in 90, they're not prophesying anything about what happened. They would be past history of what happened. In 90, you would have written a history of A.D. 70. You wouldn't write a prophecy looking forward to it. So, preterists must date the book of Revelation before A.D. 70 in order to have A.D. 70 appear as future. Evidence for the date of this book, and, and this is debated in, in scholarly circles, evidence for the date of this book is split between an early date near A.D. 70 and a later date near A.D. 96. While other schools of interpretation can accept either date, we can accept either date, frankly, preteritism can only accept the early date. Moreover, if preteritism were true, well, before I go to that, let, let, that's actually another thing. The, the, number six in the objection is the date of revelation. Now, let me give you a, a clue as to why most conservative scholars accept an A.D. 96 date for revelation. Here's why. There was an early church father who was called Irenaeus. Here's his dates. 120, he was born, and he died in 202. Okay? So he's the next generation after the apostles. And he left some writings about what he thought the date of Revelation was. So he's a lot closer than we are. He's only a generation removed from the book of Revelation. He wrote, around, he wrote this statement around 180. And here's what he said. We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who upheld, who beheld the apocalyptic vision. Who do you suppose he's talking about? John. For that was seen not very long time since, but almost in our day toward the end of Domitian's reign. So now here's a guy, church father, and he's saying the book of Revelation is written right near, by John near Domitian's reign. Well, Domitian reigned after A.D. 70. So, so, so again, preteritism has a problem here trying to establish, guy wrote his whole Ph.D. dissertation trying to argue that this book has got to be written before A.D. 70. And the evidence just, it really isn't there. So, I've gone through six, I guess, problems with preteritism. Now, let me give you one more that's in that same paragraph. I should have, when I wrote this thing, I should have made that new paragraph here. Remember, my English teacher always saying, have one central thought per paragraph. Okay? Didn't do it this time. All right. So, A.D. 70, while other schools of interpretation, okay, get to the end of the sentence, only the earlier date. Now, look at moreover. Here's another problem with preteritism. Moreover, if preteritism were true, then much of the rest of the New Testament motivational passages that rely upon the future coming of Christ to encourage godly living would become irrelevant, would it not? The entire book of Revelation is irrelevant, isn't it? If it's already happened. And so often we read in the New Testament uh, passages... Um, 
Well, I'll, we'll just take a few minutes and I'll go through the uh, passages. Well, I don't have time tonight. But, you know, the passage in the New Testament always look forward to the coming of Christ and all this and that. Well, if he came in A.D. 70, what happens to all these things? Basically, you've lost your whole motivation that's given to you in the New Testament text. So, with Christ's coming already past, much of the New Testament cannot, and here's the big point, most of the New Testament now and this is where the spirit, there's a spirit, I believe, there's a deception going on in this view that's very serious. And it, it smells of Satan right here. And here's the key sentence. With Christ coming already past, much of the New Testament cannot directly relate to the Christian life today. See? Much of the New Testament now, it's irrelevant. It was only written to those people that lived between the time of Pentecost and the time of A.D. 70. It would have to be applied only to believers living between Pentecost and A.D. 70. Preteratism, for all its complaints against dispensationalism, winds up in the end creating its own dispensation between the ascension of Jesus and A.D. 70 that takes away most of the New Testament. Okay? So thus ends the discussion on predatism. And I hope I've raised enough issues for you so you won't waste your time in life worrying about predatism. Next week, you see down at the bottom, page 125, we're going to start post-tribulationism. From now on, all of the positions we're going to deal with are people who are conservative, who are premillennial, most of them, and... Here's that Daniel 70th week. And these positions are all going to be defined. Here's the key. They'll all be defined in terms of where they place the rapture. Not the return of Christ, but the rapture. Remember we said there's going to be a difference. Because in Reformed thought, there is no difference. The rapture and revelation are the same. So here's the beginning. Here are the seven years. The view that Jesus comes here or prior to is called, naturally, pre-tribulationism. The view that he comes here, the end, will be naturally called post-tribulationism. Okay? So we're going to talk about post-tribulationism next time. Now, if you've got your head screwed on here and you're listening carefully and you just saw that diagram and you saw me put the word post on the right side of the diagram... What if I just said that they do the rapture and the return of Christ? They coalesce them. And that's why on page 127 of your notes, if you turn over there, I have a big table on the differences between the rapture and the return. And you want to look at that because that table, number nine, becomes a real critical issue in how we're going to handle these, these areas. Father, we thank you that you have illuminated the text. You've preserved the text. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is yet to come and that we can look forward to the completion of history on your schedule. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. My wife's all right. So um, go ahead and we'll have some questions now. Well, I see Debbie's not here, so she's usually our trigger lady. Do you, 
toward. Oh, okay. Yes, Dave. My thoughts is if you've got, you know, it's hard enough to find people who believe versus who don't believe, but now you're we're dealing with believers. Yes. And you're like spread on your head like, why does one group go this way, why the other group goes this way, but yet they're studying the same scriptures? And, you know, is it, is it because it starts different, like over, over Europe versus the cultures? Okay. Uh, right. You scratch your head because it's right there in black and white. Yeah, you know. Well, like I say five people see an instant, you get five different reports about what happened. Right. Okay. One of our policemen here raised a good point. Um, that, and it's true. When you go, when you, something happens, and I imagine it must be very frustrating sometimes in police work, is that you have this crime or something happen, and you start doing interviews. And you get you interview five people, and you get five different views, and here you are trying to prosecute this guy, and you know what the defense lawyer is going to do. He's going to, you know, well, see, they, they don't, don't really know what they're talking about. And, and then the case kind of goes in, in the courtroom. So I can understand the issue here. And the issue is, well, why do we have theological divergence within people who profess to believe the scriptures? I think there's several reasons for that, and I think one of the key reasons for it, Dave, is that what I've gone through here, and I, I reviewed a little bit in the, more, in the beginning of the lesson, is I, it has helped me understand a lot of this, to visualize it in terms of the progress of church history. That, that these ideas, like, uh, forget the tribulation issue for a minute, and go back to the millennial issue. That idea about the millennium, pre, uh, post, um, goes back centuries. And it is one that goes to back even in the early days prior to what we call Roman Catholicism. And there are agenda that accompany it. Um, and that's why there's really no substitute sometime to study church history. And I would recommend a book for you um, to have on your Christian bookshelf sometime if you're around. You don't have to go out today and buy it, but if you see it, it's called Our Legacy. And it's written by a professor of church history at Dallas Seminary. And actually, it's his class notes on church history that he's got in published form. And uh, there are other church history books out there. But when you look at church history and you ask yourself, um, you see all this divergence over everything. Baptism, this, that, uh, the, the Eastern Church, the Western Church, the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, within Protestantism, the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists. and You begin to say, what is going on here with all this? Um, keep your eye on the big, heavy ideas and don't get lost in the trees. It's going to be very easy to lose the forest for the trees next week, week after, and the week after. Because the next four views we deal with uh, are people who agree over a wide area, but they disagree over these, uh, some of these details. 
the view I finish tonight, which is preteritism, is, is quite different from the rest of them. And it's quite different because it's associated with amillennialism and postmillennialism. It, it's part of that package. And the reason it is, is because there's a certain internal logic. Um, ideas always have consequences. And just remember that. And people think that ideas don't have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have bad consequences. It's as though God had, God has made us to be rational beings. He created us to understand his will. And his will is rational. And so when Satan deceives or he trips us up, and we're all subject to deception. We can't sit here and be so proud and say, oh, we're, we got the truth and everybody else is deceived. Because we always have to look to make sure we're not being misled. And each one of us in our Christian life can be misled. I mean, just living the practical, everyday Christian life, we're subject to deceptions. And it's so easy to do that. There's not a person here tonight, including myself, who hasn't been embarrassed and ashamed of being stupidly misled and deceived. That's just part of the Christian life. So that's on a microcosm. Now, on the church, on the macrocosm, it's the same sort of thing. If you go back in church history, when the church was active in Israel and had a high Jewish component... There was theological diversity a little bit, but it was held together by a common respect for literal interpretation of Scripture. Because Jews, the conservative Jews, Jews that were serious about their Bible, even to this day, the Orthodox Jews, you know, you see with a beanie, um, they tend to be a lot, agree with us, for example, in creation. I mean, the, the Orthodox Jew believes in, in literal creation. And, and some of them are good scientists. And it's an unspoken area. It's because we evangelical creationists have been outspoken, so we're identified and we're targets. But they kind of quiet, but they believe the same way. So, again, it's that, that Jewish influence molded out of the centuries of their own history. They have no problem when the Bible says something's going to happen in Jerusalem. They don't turn Jerusalem into Rome. They don't turn Jerusalem into a city. They know where Jerusalem is. They want to all go back there and live there. They don't have a problem. Well, what happened is that as the centuries went on in church history, less and less percent of the church was Jewish. They developed a schism. In fact, by the time of Bar Kokhba's revolt in one, whatever it was, in 150, one, late, late in the second century, uh, the Hebrew Christians refused to join the revolt. And at that point, if you were a Christian Jew, you could just kiss it off as far as any reconciliation between you and the rest of the Jewish community. You were just a traitor. You were not a patriot. You didn't stick with us. And so there was a political rupture that happened. And then as time went on, um, and the, 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 you get to the point of Augustine and his era, Constantine and that whole era there, and the church wins out, basically. Uh, the, the pagan society of Rome, as powerful as it was, collapsed. Collapsed through, by the way, uh, polytheism contributed a large degree to it. All the paganism is splitting around this. They had no central ideas that had lost. The, um, no longer would people volunteer to the army. They had to hire people to fight for them. And, and they, they basically got were hiring non-Romans to fight the Roman army because enough Romans wouldn't do it. 
Uh, they, their businesses went to pot. Uh, the, the civilization collapsed, and it was a big shock. But guess what? In the middle of all that collapse, what society that lived in that part of the Mediterranean kept going? It had a work ethic. Who had morality? It was the church. It was the Christians. So the Christians kind of survived the collapse of Rome because they had this character. They were lawful people. And if you want to read the story, Augustine's City of God is a very good explanation. That's his defense because the, a lot of the Romans blamed the Christians for the collapse of Rome. Now, if you were a Rome, just think about this. Put yourself in a Roman position. Let's, let's exercise here. If you were a Roman and you looked and saw your country go down the tubes and you believed in paganism and you believed that the Zeus or Jupiter and these gods were angry with you, the, the country couldn't have gone down without the gods being angry. And you knew your, these Christian people down the street that didn't worship Jupiter, didn't worship Venus, didn't pay obeisance to the gods. What would be your attitude to that Christian down the street? You'd say, hey, I know why this society collapsed. Those people. And so there was animosity. The Christians got blamed for this collapse thing. Well, after the thing came on and the Roman, the, the Roman Empire, quote, became Christianized and, quote, uh, politically acceptable, at that point there was an agenda that formed. If you, and, and, it, and you can see how the deception started. We can't be proudful and look back, oh, well, if I were there, I would have straightened them out. Um, probably not. Uh, the, the agenda was this that the persecutions had stopped. Um, there was great potential now. Paganism was out of the way. Now the church, yeah, the society had collapsed, but the church was going fine. We have new buildings now. People aren't being thrown to the lions. Uh, we can breathe a sigh of relief. It's the day of the church. And see, the tendency there would be to say, well, those kingdom passages, they're coming to pass in our time. This is the day of the great triumph. The church has triumphed over the paganist society. And so that lent a political, social motive to develop amillennialism. Add to that another thread to this was Augustine had studied whom? By the way, Augustine did not know Hebrew, couldn't read it. Um, Augustine had studied under Greek philosophers. And one of the things that the Greek philosophers demeaned was the flesh. They equated the flesh with the source of all evil. And it was your spirit that was, was good. And all the passions of man, this is this flesh thing. Now, that's not true. The flesh is not inherently bad. The Greek problem was that they saw the fallen flesh extrapolated and said, all flesh has this behavior, therefore flesh is bad. Well, what doctrine in the Christian position would have prevented you from deducing that conclusion? The fall, the creation. God didn't make the flesh fallen. The flesh at one time wasn't fallen. It wasn't the source of evil. And the future isn't going to be the source of evil because we get a resurrection body. So 
but Augustine had, had thought about this, and he, he kept thinking in terms, the flesh is bad, the flesh is bad, the material is bad, the material is bad. So, without a Jewish influence, under the seduct seductive moment of history when oh, we're free now, the Christians can really get going, and then add to that a shaky hermeneutic that looks at these texts about he... The lion shall live with the lamb and the mountain shall grow in Jerusalem and there will be a temple in Jerusalem on a high mountain. See that the tendency would have been... What is That can't literally be. The higher truth is this. And so Augustine was the guy who set up amillennialism. Now, he wasn't the only guy, but he gelled it. He was a genius. And Augustine had many good things he did and many horrible things. Augustine was the guy that declared that oh, you could only be saved if you joined the church at Rome. Sorry about the other churches. So he was a very ardent Roman Catholic in one sense. He was also very ardent, we would say, a Protestant in another sense because he was the guy who held to the God's sovereignty in history. So anyway, you have this agenda. And this took over. Premillennialism was just absolutely lost. And nobody even questioned it. They marched on, oh, okay, this is the church age, and, you know, this is the time of kingdom and blessing. Well, now, if this is the time of kingdom and blessing, what do you do about the prophet? What's characteristic of the millennium? Remember why I said one of the conditions that you had to have in order to get a perfect, well, a well-ordered human society? Who had to be banished? Satan, right? Satan and the demons had to be incarcerated. Well, if they're incarcerated right now, why do I read in the New Testament, be careful, because the devil, like a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour. He's, he's loose. So, that's why I said, with predatism, if, you got, if this is the kingdom, you've got a conflict there right with that scripture. So, going back to Dave's question, I believe that what happened is there was a wholesale deception that happened in the 3rd and 4th centuries due to a, a convergence of various themes of history. And it went on, and God didn't make an issue out of it, because in those days, what the Holy Spirit was making an issue out of is, hey guys, get the person of Christ straight. Just do that, and make me happy. And then we come to the Middle Ages, hey, get the cross straight. And we come to the Middle Ages. So what I see, Dave, is that as the church goes forward, um, you have a progress in which these deceptions are largely rejected. And, and it leads to these, these movements. And, and so when you say, well, this group A or this group B, if you trace their history, you can trace it back to one of these things. Um, let's, let's go forward to another easy-to-see one. What about mode of baptism? That's a good one. Because there are Bible-believing Christians that are Presbyterian, Bible-believing Christians, and they're Baptistic type. I don't mean you don't have to be a Baptist, Baptist, but if you believe in uh, believers' baptism, you're you're a Baptist in that regard. How did that get started? Um, well, think back historically. What mode of baptism did the Roman Catholic Church practice? Infant baptism, except for an adult convert, right? And they sprinkled because the sprinkling, the mode sprinkling got started because you don't want to drown a baby. So when infant baptism, the corollary usually is sprinkling for safety purposes. So you have 
infant baptism, infant baptism, infant baptism, goes on and on. But if you think about it, and you have infant baptism, what you're saying is that you're somehow joining into a relationship with the church when you're a little baby. Well, now the problem comes, is the baby, what's the relationship the baby has with God after the drops get sprinkled on his forehead versus the relationship the baby had before the drops got sprinkled on his forehead? Well, Roman Catholicism developed a big theology out of this. I mean, you're in trouble if your kid isn't baptized and sprinkled um, because they're, they're worried about the salvation issue here. And to them, it's a very critical thing. Now you come over and this, this stays, no problem, everybody accepts it, goes on and on and on and on, comes up to the Protestant Reformation. Now the Protestants got a problem because they're saying that you're saved by faith. Can the baby believe? Well, know about that. So what happened was that within Presbyterian circles, they hold to infant baptism, but they are very careful to say it doesn't save the child. It's, a, it's sort of a covenant promise that is made by the parents to raise the child in a godly environment. So you see what happened? They preserved the mode, but they changed the theology because at that point in church progress, it became clear about how you're saved. So that forced them to rethink this infant baptism thing. Well, right in the same generation with Calvin, Luther, uh, there's a guy under Zwangli, can't think of his name now, but he came up with the idea, he said, hey, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You guys are telling me that our theology should be built sola scriptura. We should go directly to the scriptures. And even if the church fathers say something, they won't really count as much as the scriptures count. That's sola scriptura. Not the scripture and the church fathers, but sola scriptura. Every doctrine has to be justified only by the scripture, not by scripture plus something else. So they said, you know, we look at the scriptures in the New Testament and you know, we don't really find infant baptism there. Well, now, the Protestant reformers, they, they were fighting all kinds of battles, you know, with Rome. And all of a sudden, this thing erupts behind them. And they say, hey, look, you know, we can't fight everything, so you guys just hush up. And it, the Protestants joined with the Catholics to persecute the Anabaptists. So there was the rise of the modal problem. But if you think through and know your church history, and I guess that's my big answer to Dave's question tonight, is you've got to see this all in the light of church history. What led to these things? They didn't just erupt. They, they came out of us, and there's a certain logic behind them. And if you understand the logic, it makes things easier to talk to people without getting too upset. They realize that we're all a product of history. And so, so the Anabaptists finally basically have, have articulated and sharpened up their position and see no reason why we should bother with infant baptism because what's the justification for it? So that's, that's, that's how all that started. Now, the eschatology, I say, is putting finishing touches on a line of thought. The amillennial and the postmillennial have got to deal with pessimistic passages. They've got to deal with these things. The darkness, the moon, the catastrophes, and so forth. They've got to deal with this. And it stands in the way of 
history going to the person of Christ and ending. They've either, what do you do with all the stuff that's in there? And it's always been a kind of a problem that festered. Preteritism is a maneuver. Now, I'm not saying they sat in a smoke-filled room and figured this out. I'm saying that there's an agenda behind this that we are almost subliminally unconscious about, that when we have an idea, we will live it out. And almost unintentionally, we will live it out. And to, to get rid of all this stuff, they, they fastened on the idea, well, look, wouldn't it be nice if we could just scoop it all up and drop it in AD 70 and get rid of it? And that, that gives me relief. Now I don't have to deal with that. The problem is, once you've done that, you've scooped out half the New Testament. And that's where we left it tonight with preteritism. But I believe there are big ideas at work here that flow through history. And just, I just recommend you read history. It gives you a better appreciation that this didn't... It's not like we had five kindergarten kids in the classroom and they all came up with this just to be nasty. Uh, it didn't happen that way. Um, I guess I yacked on it. Anybody else have a quick question? Yes, and that's getting stronger in evangelical circles at this point. Um, we have, we have, well, uh, we've had people leaving Protestantism and going back to Rome who graduated from Westminster Seminary. And the reason is, if you think what you just said, you said that they take tradition and scripture. What does Rome do? They're a lot better at it than amateur Protestants. So if you're gonna, if you're going to go that route. You might as well be Rome. Go to Rome. Because they are, the, they, have, they are the libraries, they've got the experience, they've got the scholars. So that's the way to go. And that's what you're going to see. I believe that the Reformed people who are going in that direction will either come this way or they're going to go to Rome. Okay.